Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Your Ability, Not Your Circumstances, Anne and I are joined by Rafael Zapata, Chief Diversity Officer, Special Assistant to the President for Diversity, and Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs at Fordham University who shares his thoughts about how to care for our students, our colleagues, and ourselves. Rafael, can you tell us a little bit about what your job is at Fordham and what you do? First, let me say thank you to both you and Steve for inviting me to serve as your first guest on this wonderful podcast. My title, Special Assistant to the President for Diversity, Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs and Chief Diversity Officer. My job essentially is how do we move Fordham institutionally to achieve its, its its goals around diversity, not just structural diversity, but helping our students, faculty, and staff all thrive. What is our relationship and responsibility to the local communities, given the social and economic challenges that play out right outside our gates? How do we engage thoughtfully and authentically? The guiding vision that Steve and I have for this podcast is to kind of mm-hmm. think about what our students need, mm-hmm. how we can help our students and what resources we do faculty need to help students learn what they need to know right now. Mm-hmm. And our fourth guiding vision really comes from you, Raphael, which is mm-hmm. who do we want to be during and after this mm-hmm. crisis? So mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to ask you to, to reflect on kind of what from where you sit at the university you think students need most right now. Students need what a lot of us need, including faculty and staff, and that's um some patience, some compassion, some affirmation in order to get us through these uniquely challenging times. Again, this is not just affecting our institution or higher education. This global pandemic is affecting the world. We'll be dealing with uncertainty for the next few months at the very least. So I think we need to be curious instead of rushing to judgment, solicit good ideas from members of the community in order to get us through. What are our priorities in this unprecedented environment for teaching and learning? And my hope is that the discomfort and the challenges that arise from this context can provide lessons for everyone involved that can endure once we get past and we will get past. I love that word you use, be curious. Can you say a little bit more about what it means to be curious? I'm thinking about the classroom environment. I'm thinking about the student experience and the wide range of family, social, economic context that students may find themselves in. So if a student doesn't make it to class, hasn't handed in an assignment, or other things that in a, in a normal context might give clues to or may make one worry, about issues of academic integrity, commitment, be curious with the students. So I'm thinking about it in that way and inviting students to to help you understand what might be in the way of their learning, of their ability to complete assignments. And again, I, I think it speaks to the accentuated vulnerabilities that students feel in this context, especially those, let's say, from low-income backgrounds, who don't have the resources that many people take for granted. When we're curious, we can allow people the agency to speak for themselves as opposed to either explicitly or implicitly giving a message that you're cheating or you're not committed or you're otherwise not a serious person. 
one of the things that we've been talking about, how you're in a Zoom meeting and suddenly it's really easy to see some of the inequities that we live with. You know, I've seen that with faculty and some of those have been endearing. Some of those have, you know, it has been sweet where, you know, a child comes and kind of nuzzles up and it gives you insight into the lives because all we get are the students in the classrooms, kind of in a typical classroom. And again, we're literally getting a window into their lives that we might not otherwise have. And uh, if we can hold that sacred, I think if it's not an issue for you, I think you'll model that for the students, the other students in the class who, who will also see those things. And that's what comes to mind, that we're getting an insight that we otherwise wouldn't have. And we're seeing people as full persons, which I think speaks to our mission. Can we see our students fully? How do we prepare for that? You know, we're all learning as we go. Can you talk us through a little bit about how we might reflect on those assumptions about the approaches that we're recommending and what are some considerations we need to always bear in mind? With that question, I'm reminded of sample syllabus language that you get from scholars like Sarah goldrick Rob, whose scholarship revolves around low-income, working-poor students, working-class students in higher education. She, she suggests language for students, let's say, who kind of are in that category. If there's anything, any requirements in this course to which you confront a barrier, talk to me and we'll figure it out together. That can also go for students with disabilities. That can also go for anyone who, because someone is sick in their home and has to be quarantined, they might be living with an aunt in a less than ideal situation. They may be living with a next door neighbor. So I think when you provide that language, and, and I know we're not talking about syllabi, either at the beginning of class, putting it out there so it offers an invitation. If there's anything that prevents you from fully participating in the class, let me know and we'll figure it out together. And if I don't know the answer to those questions, I'll find out who does. And to the best of our ability, we'll, we'll work on some solutions. Because right. it's important to us that you get to fully participate and complete the semester in a way that demonstrates your ability, not your circumstances. The difference between the legal language of what, right. what we're required to provide in terms of accommodation and the kind of welcoming language that you just modeled, Raphael. Really, as educators, what are we trying to do in terms of inviting you into the space? This problem is much bigger than Fordham. On average, some scholars talk about about 17% of students are food insecure. Some of those students come from low-income, working-class families. They're probably going to be the ones who have lost their jobs already or who are vulnerable to losing their jobs, to being laid off or furloughed. That's huge. We're not just talking about owing $1,000 on my tuition bill and I can't register. We're talking about people who may not be able to provide their rent. And we've had cases like that already. So a faculty member, what they can do is inquire. And this has happened already. And what that's allowed us to do is to centralize information. The question is, this is beyond the students. You know, this kind of emergency is widespread. And, and the question becomes, no one institution is going to be equipped. Even the Harvards of the world may have limits. So there is some guidance that uh, to assist students in the context of COVID-19. I know that thus far, and I'm not recommending this, but you know, sometimes faculty would take this into their own hands, but that's un unsustainable. So the advice I give is to find out first what exists within Fordham, outside of the community, and we'll, we'll put our heads together to try to support that individual student. 
And to your point about when you invite students, especially those from particularly disadvantaged or high need backgrounds for whatever reason, we're not equipped. We're not social workers. We're not counselors. Some might be, but even if you are, you know, we don't take on caseloads. What we can do is try to put our, our heads together and think, think wisely to try to support the student and hope we can at least have a positive impact. This is kind of a mind boggling situation because it's still unfolding. The impacts of this pandemic continue to unfold. And I know that for a lot of my students, and I see it in my own children, I've got two teenagers, just the Zoom check-ins with a faculty member, just seeing the familiar face of an adult who cares about you can really help you feel back to yourself a little bit. And I'm wondering what resources have been most helpful or inspiring or useful to you in thinking about your role at the university in this time when you're not on campus? You know, how do you feel like Raphael when, you know, all we do is sit and we're on a Zoom meeting? So what are you doing and what are the resources that you have been turning to? That's an extremely important point, Anne, because we can easily be so focused on students that we forget to care for ourselves. This thing, this applies to all of us. I'll take a walk. You know, I'll take a, a long walk. I'm committed to, to taking 30,000 30, steps a day. Wow. And I'll, do, I'll do it outside, but I, I will admit, I'll walk back and forth within the apartment while I'm on a phone call with a friend or even on a conference call. And it's different when you're moving. It activates different parts of your brain, different parts of your body. It gets the blood flowing, gets the endorphins flowing. And it just, it keeps me grounded. But also being outside, letting the sun shine on my face uh, has always been something that I've enjoyed uh, as much as I can. I live with my mom, going to be 80 years old. So I have to take into account that I'd be extremely vigilant and safe. And I think I've been able to balance that. I sent an email last night to my students, something like, hey, you can't do the the final paper, here are some other ideas. And I can't help thinking, like, is this what they're thinking about? I have this intention that I'm trying to support them. But I don't know if they're receiving it like, I can't believe this guy's emailing me about the final (laughs) paper. I don't want to say, don't worry about the final paper, because I don't want to give up. I don't want to send that message that we're giving up. But on the other hand, I don't want to be like, hey, I know it's a global pandemic, but, you know, this final paper. Right. right. So I'm don't like stuck lazy. in that, in that, stop, in that zone. Exactly. <laughs> that is the question right now. And, you know, I've gotten emails from, you know, I'm co-teaching this evening class, and I got an email from my co-facilitator saying, uh, are we kidding ourselves that we're even meeting again? And so we wrote this incredibly tenderly, gently worded thing. You know, if you need to back away, we know this is an extracurricular class, you know, and everyone's like, no, 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 I'm in. This is making me happy. I need this. I need to be thinking about something that's future oriented. You know, I need to be thinking about something other than COVID-19. And that's not true for everybody. And I mean, and that might be a student who's caring for someone or worrying about someone who's very sick. And it might be a student who's relatively unaffected, right? A student who, I mean, by relatively unaffected, I mean, and this is kind of my hope and wish for everyone who's listening, right? That the worst we're experiencing is boredom and anxiety, right? Rather yeah, than, yeah. right? Rather than yeah. active, we 
worry about someone who's sick or caretaking for someone who's sick, right? I mean, all of us at the very worst are anxious and bored. I think and some students, especially students who are already suffering from anxiety disorders, who are already precarious, they may not be able to finish strong, right? And that's okay too. That's okay too. The challenge that all of us have that if we're communicating via email is just so different than when you do it in person. Hard to convey tone, how to hard to convey all those things that I know that you bring to the classroom. But you know, I, I, again, you, you're not making any assumptions about what students can and can't do, and and you hope that you've developed the kind of relationship that they can engage with you. There are some, I guess, what we're calling assumptions in this conversation yeah. that are perhaps not as supportive of students in terms of their ability to complete assignments on time, the testing conditions, accessing live sessions, and so on. What would you advise students to do in a situation where they're already, in some sense, disempowered because of the current situation and other factors who are now confronted by an instructional setting that perhaps is not as as supportive and understanding as it might be. What should that student do? It's a lot to ask for a student who's already feeling stressed out, who who maybe made initiated a conversation about their need to be accommodated. And when you have a faculty member who just doesn't understand, I would ask a student who can advocate on my behalf. A dean, we have outstanding deans, advisors that can speak on behalf of a student, maybe to take that burden away if that was something that helped the student or someone that could help the student provide support for the student to advocate for themselves because that is a lot to ask in an already stressful environment for students who are constantly worried about whether their needs are going to be understood as valid and important as opposed to you know them seeking ways to work a system in a way that is void of integrity like that's painful so, so seeking support from people you trust or seeking advice from, from deans or another faculty member with whom you have a good relationship so that they can then advocate for themselves. And if not, someone can, you know, and I've done this in my previous roles as an advisor, just to give some context and say, this young person is actually hardworking. This is how I've accommodated them in, in my class, something along those lines. But it's always better if the student can do it themselves. But again, these are just unusual times. One of the, I mean, we knew, Steve and I knew, Raphael, that we would want to talk to you and when we started this podcast, but one of the reasons why I knew for sure that we want to talk to you is how touched and inspired I was by what you shared from Father Mick McCarthy, who's the VP for yeah. Mission Integration and Planning, Absolutely. about who do we want to be after this crisis. And that's really become kind of a North Star for me when I'm thinking yeah. about, you know, what matters and what doesn't matter in this moment. And I'm wondering how you've been using that for yourself as a kind of way of assessing, you know, how you even just how you spend your day, which meetings you take and which meetings you don't take. I was in a vice president's meeting and talked about what do we want to be able to say about ourselves once we get out of this? When we look back, and that's a question for all of us, but I, I know I want to be able to say that I was caring, I was available, present for colleagues, for students, and I hope it's how I try to be. <laughs> you know, every day and the work that we do, can we move forward an institution that serves all students, faculty, staff in ways that help them thrive, that is affirming, that sees these communities as assets to be engaged? What can bring us into greater relationship with one another 
It's a very Jesuit principle, one that resonates with me personally. And I want to be in spaces where I encourage that in others. Our mission is our North Star. This is when we really need to lean into it as we face these difficult times. And, and I have to say, I feel really good that the institution is doing that. All of us are suffering to some degree or another. There's a broader range of difficulty, but then how can we be there for one another in a supporting way? I just finished reading this book by Kevin Gannon, I think called Radical Hope. He talks about the lesson that he learned as a teacher about rules that matter and the rules that don't matter, right? And that is in such high relief right now when we're in crisis. We're getting to the end of our conversation. If you want to tell us a little bit about a teacher who really mattered to you and how they continue to inspire you. I've had some great teachers. I'll tell you about one that comes to mind. When I was in grammar school, I had the same teacher from seventh and eighth grade, uh, Russell Warren. You know, these are teachers who see things in you that you don't know you have. You're in seventh grade. You know, I grew up in public housing. I go to the neighborhood Catholic school. And uh, he tried to get me into this program at Xavier High School. It was a summer program. It was it was eligible for five boys. He approached me among the five in our class, and I just wouldn't do it because I did other stuff over the summer. I, I did this other summer program where we did sports, and, and I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. I just wasn't ready to let go of the things that I was familiar with to kind of do something else that probably would have could have changed the trajectory of my, my life, for better or for worse. I'm happy with how my life changed, but... <laughs> He saw things in me and we stayed in touch. You know, he became a principal in the Bronx. When I was in high school, I talked to his students and we just stayed in touch throughout college and he lives in the Bay Area. And, and I love that, man. I think when National Teacher Day comes, I think of my man, Russ. You know, I really, I really love that guy. He helped me learn how to write. He was an English professor, English teacher. He studied at St. Peter's. I think of him very much and we had him for two years. He loves Shakespeare. He would do King Lear with us. And he was just a, a whole person. He's a goofball, like this short, balding, 30-year-old. Look, not I'm not judging, but you know, <laughs> when you're in seventh grade, you're like, who's this guy? That's a long way of saying that um, that he really got to know us. He cared about us. That's yeah. really what what's what's interesting and nice about that story is, you know, there's a formula for stories about teachers that matter to us, right? And it's like, and I seized that opportunity and that's why I, you know, became the king of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great to be like, Yeah, I didn't see it. You know, he saw yeah, something in no. me and I just I couldn't I couldn't seize that opportunity. And yet it still mattered, right? It right, still right. mattered. You've been talking about assumptions of the students, right? And he saw you and knew you and made Mm -hmm. assumptions about you that that you weren't even aware of yet. You you told that story before. For my first semester in college, I missed office hours. I didn't know what office hours were. (laughs) That's right. I showed up to class, and the professor berated me in front of the class. I walked out of class, and I dropped out. The things we take for granted... The structures, the customs, the culture, that students just don't, they don't know what these things are. Right. And and so, you know, they can't take advantage of resources or they can't, because they just don't, they don't, they're not aware that my dean is my advocate, not, not someone, if I go to the dean, I'm in trouble. That was my experience in college. You know, I, I wouldn't ever go to a dean. I went to Iona. The new Rochelle, oh, and inspired by 
Brother McNulty because he was the valedictorian there. And I didn't know where mm. to go. I figured the brothers cared for me here. They'll care for me over there. But I never spoke to a dean or anyone, any administrator who I would go to would be the brothers, the, the men in the collars, because that was more culturally uh, familiar to me. If I had an issue, you know, I would talk to them and that was really helpful. Uh, what you're talking about is kind of this notion of acculturating yourself to something that's really designed for the middle class or upper middle class, people who've done it before, and that's no judgment. But you're in the middle of experiencing social mobility and you're in between these two, the, these spaces that are very different. There's a book by uh, Alfred Lubrano, you may be familiar with it, called uh, Limbo. And he's Italian-American from Brooklyn, went to Columbia. His father was a bricklayer. It's an amazing book. Mm -hmm. And he talks about being in between. And then, you know, the other point is, is a more recent book by Anthony Jack called The Privileged Poor. And, and kind of how students come, even if they're high achieving in their schools, the norms are just so different. Faculty get annoyed, frustrated with students without understanding that they don't, they're not how can I say, defying you by not going to office hours, but office hours is equated when you have a problem. Right. Tutor, tutoring is associated when you have a deficit. You know, I was always smart. I never needed tutoring as opposed to seeing it as developmental. And that reframing mm. is a process for students. And we need faculty to understand how that's going to be received differently. I was talking right? to a colleague who teaches mm -hmm. at Fordham now, who's first generation, and when he was in college, he thought a stipend was not what you get paid. It was the fee. And yeah. so he didn't apply for a summer internship that came with a stipend because it's like, I can't afford $2,000. He didn't realize, no, 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 you get paid $2,000 <laughs> to do this, right? But the word stipend was a barrier for him. When, when I was supposed to go to college, uh, I graduated high school in June of 88, so I was going to start that September. Then I thought I had to have a major. I didn't know what that major was going to be. I got really anxious, and I just called them and said, I'm going to postpone my enrollment, and I'll go in January. Like, I literally freaked out. And that was the right decision for me. So I ended up working in the Gap, earning three thirty-five an hour. That was the minimum wage. Wow. I think they maybe started up at three fifty, gave us an extra 15 cents. And I had a great job, you know, working in the stock room. It was fun. A lot of people my age, but it was, it was awful in terms of what they paid us. And I was really motivated to go back to school as a result of that. And I remember talking to Mr. Warren Russell and telling him how much I really, really wanted to go back to school. And I went back and I had a great first semester. I didn't know you can go undeclared. I didn't know what the, all this stuff was. Registration, all these things alone. What? Like, it was shocking, confusing, scary, because I had no idea what was happening. But I took that first semester off, and it, it helped me. I was very lucky in that regard. But Well, we were lucky to have you, Raphael. Thanks so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. No, thank you, Steve, and thank you, Anne. This was a lot of fun. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or 
email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. On behalf of Anne and myself, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>